Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Business Fun Podcast. It's me, Dave Wakeman, your host. My guest today is Drew McManus from Upstage. This was a great conversation, uh, probably a long time in the making. Uh, It was awesome. I recorded it from the airport, so if the sound quality is not up to standards, blame it on me, not Drew. Uh, He is excellent. Uh, Before we talk about my conversation with Drew, though, check out my website. It's DaveWakeman.com. Uh, make sure you pay attention to the shop. I have added a, there's, first there's a whiteboard workshop there, that which I do uh, with individual organizations. You spend a day with me uh, and your executive team or your sales team, your marketing team, uh, figuring out a path forward. So that's one thing. But there's also a situational consulting offering that I put on there, uh, and there'll be some workshops that are going up. I'm finally getting my act together there and putting things up there. So that's DaveWakeman.com. Uh, get the Talking Tickets newsletter at talkingtickets.substack.com. That's my weekly ticket newsletter. Or if you're so inclined, you can also get my weekly strategy note uh, at businessofvalue.substack.com. Uh, check out my friends at Cover Genius. When this drops, you'll be able to see them this week, I believe, at the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Birmingham, England. Um, Cover Genius will be there. Haley, Joe, all my friends. Um, ask them about CFAR, which is the cancel for any reason product that Cover Genius offers. Uh, it has been really sticking in my mind lately because um, when we were in, in ticks in Seattle, we talked about uh, refund protection rates uh, and customer peace of mind as a way to help people get back to buying tickets or feeling comfortable buying tickets or feeling comfortable going to theater and sports and events. And what we found was that the Playhouse Theater in Ohio is seeing about 48% of their customers take up uh, refund protection. That's an incredibly big number. Um, The most I had seen before that number was about 30%, 30, 33%, 48% is half. I mean, it's crazy. It just tells you that peace of mind is just more and more important. So talk to Cover Genius. Check out the CFAR product um, and let me know what you think. So back to Drew. So we talked. I finally met Drew face to face at Intix in Seattle. Uh, we, he showed me the Upstage product. Uh, I was like, "Come on on the po- podcast. Let's talk about this thing." Um, Drew had a blog for a long time. We talk about his blogging career. Um, we talk about uh, the expectations of the industry. We understanding the customer. Um, Drew has an idea that he offers up, and he I make him define it for me called one size fits none. We talk about trends and changes. We talk about where he finds his ideas. We even get a plug for his wife, Holly, uh, who does some exceptional work. And if you don't know who she is, uh, um, you should check out Drew's wife, Holly. Um, We talk about reactions and data and market segments and um, the minimum amount of functionality. This is a really, really, I think, practical, actionable, uh, useful, but also... Uh, strategic conversation. Uh, it was great. Uh, I can't wait to see Drew in person again. Um, and it was so awesome to be able to talk to him on the business of fun. Well, 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 I've got Drew McManus here on the podcast. Um, we actually have been talking for about 15 minutes and I forgot to start recording. So, uh, Drew, it's good to talk to you. Likewise, Dave. Thank you very much for having me here. I'm excited. Oh, this is going to be great. Now, um, because I just told everybody how much of a knucklehead I am, uh, we were talking about uh, framing questions and asking the right questions to solve problems. And uh, it came out of a conversation about like somebody was asking, 
uh, is, you know, the art or the arts dying? Is classical music dying? And I said, well, it's not really the right question because you would have to ask the question of sports and entertainment and all these things. It's like, well, how do they evolve to meet the moment we're in right now? And you were about to make a really smart point. So I want to jump in right there. And we're like, we're like, no preamble. We're going right for it. Yeah, I think it's a good place to start because it does dovetail into the broader topic of the technology that serves those fields as well, whether it's sports or arts. Um, it's 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 not the right question to ask because you do need to focus more on what are you trying to solve for your patron base, your customer base, or how are you relevant for them? Um, and it is that relevance question that is kind of at the core of of where everything needs to go is too many businesses, um, whether it's commercial or entertainment side of things, tend to focus a little too much on themselves as opposed to what uh, their core consumer really thinks, wants, and what that service or experience means to them. And if you can't focus on that first, then everything you're doing is going to be more for yourself. And that's great if you have something that's popular at a moment, but it's not a great long-term legacy strategy, that's for sure. Well, I, okay, so this is this is good, right? Where we where we jump right in here. Because it, when I do my workshops, it's almost it almost always comes up and the frame I use is like, remember that you're not your customer. And you know, I think that at least to me, the challenge starts out is um, everybody wants a magic wand that they can use some technology solution that they can wave across the air and all of a sudden all their mi miracles go away. Or if they think that, hey, look, I love this uh, esoteric uh, 17th century opera, then everybody should. And if you don't, you're a moron. Um, how yeah. do you start the conversation to get people to understand, look, I need this, the first step I need to do is take a step back because at least to me, the arts, sports, any of these things are as relevant as ever. It's just that you have to realize that people might be experiencing life in a different way. And not maybe, they definitely are. And that right. that's the challenge is to meet them where they are, not where you want them to be. Meet them where they are. That, that is perfect. And, you know, I have a one-to-one -one example for this. When we started developing um, our ticketing CRM, Upstage mm -hmm. CRM, we started with nine months of uh, user research before we started writing any code whatsoever, really, at least meaningful code. Um, we started with the ticket buying experience. We did not start with what admins need to do and want to do. We started with right. the buyer. So we took a reserved seating scenario. We created three different user groups. One of them was your core user groups, people who are your regular ticket buyers. They know your system. They know what you're doing. And they're comfortable in that environment. And they're comfortable using the systems that already exist. Then we had what we called infrequent ticket buyers, people who buy maybe one to two tickets a year and have gap years between purchases. And then the third group were complete newbies. With inside of each of those, we had at least one representative from every age group, if you're familiar with Google Analytics, defined by the, yep. you know, the, the GA age groups. And then as much diversity uh, past that socioeconomic that we possibly could put into each each group. And, you know, there were no shocking surprises from the fact that core ticket buyers wanted a very different buying experience than infrequent and newbie buyers. Correct. So the challenge is how do you put something together that meets all of their needs? 
core ticket buyers wanting to be dropped right into that map experience. They know the seat they want. They just want to go grab it, stick it in the cart, and try to get through that, you know, in unbearably long checkout process because they're used to it. Yeah. Whereas the other folks don't. They're not familiar with the hall. They don't know what the seats are like. They have lots of questions. It's all overwhelming. And we were looking for improvement and conversion with each iteration of our study. And so what we what we ended up doing was, first of all, building out a list of filterable items. That's like you click a filter button, then a little drawer slides out, and you can yep. filter by price, you can filter by, I mean, that's not particularly unique stuff, but we tried to add as much of it as in as, as much human language as possible. And then we developed a narrative path for uh, newbie buyers in particular, based on each of those filterable criteria. So it would start off with how many tickets do you want to buy? It's just a screen with a question at the top and allows them to enter in the answer. And then it walks them through every hierarchical step in that filter bar by asking them first, what's more important to you in your decision making? What do you not know about that we can answer for you? And it lets them basically go through the filtering process in narrative sense, yes. the conversion rate among newbie buyers more than doubled when they went through that process. Now, the interesting thing, though, is when core buyers got dropped into that process, they would just ream us out over how unnecessary this is, and I don't want this, and I don't like this, and this is wrong, this is a bad idea. But here's the really fascinating part, because we followed some real Gestalt UX theory stuff here. And at the top of that narrative path, we included a big button that said back to the seat map. And every single core ticket buyer who bitched and moaned about the process on page one did exactly what we wanted. And they clicked that button and they went right back to where they were and they completed their conversion process just like they normally would have. That's an empathetic buying strategy. It allows you to adapt to what you're comfortable with is the, is the first thing it sounds like to me. But my, my other question is probably a leading question. Mm -hmm. It's like, how big is your core buying audience compared to your newbies or your infrequent buyers? And I know the answer. It's a trick question. So right. yeah, I want everybody exactly. to hear this because they don't necessarily, they never think of it this way. Or at least uh, to say never, maybe too strong, rarely think of it. In Not as much as they should. I think maybe that's a good middle ground for it is because okay, the voices fair. they hear the most from are those core buyers. You know, the core yes. buyers are usually on their board as well. So they're breathing over their shoulder. So they're making that that buying segment happy. And it's yeah. difficult to hear from the people that you're trying to sell to that you want to buy tickets, but don't. I mean, that was one of our greatest challenges was getting that that user group that was a meaningful group of users that met the criteria. So I totally understand that that's mm -hmm. not easy to do, but that core buying group is not going to be sustainable from a financial standpoint. They're not going to be the majority of all the seats that you have to sell in your hall. So you've got to branch out. You have to give your ticket buying pool, your potential pool, the people you want, the experience that they need to convert better and feel more comfortable in their ticket buying purchase, and an experience that more closely matches what they're used to on other online uh, buying experiences. Now, 
when you are you can you know i love this research stuff too because i do a lot of it and people are like why do you spend so much time on research i go because strangely enough people tell me what they want and then i just go ahead and figure <laughs> out how to give it to them and, they, <laughs> and it makes the sales process a whole lot easier um so i love it um so when you were doing all of this research what did you find out from newbies that they really want um you know because i think that sometimes it's a little confusing because again if you aren't careful you only hear the voices of the people who are your core your core buyers right and they want something entirely different than the newbies but the newbies are the people you need to get into because there's always a huge a bigger audience of people who might buy once or twice a year mm-hmm. than there are who are going to buy a season ticket so what do they say they want what, what do they tell you that they need confidence they need to learn about what they don't know and they don't need to feel bad about learning it you know there is this 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 artificial environment of shame that's built into the arts and culture uh environment where if you don't know well snootiness yeah i mean that really what it is and it is making someone very very internally feel that they don't know and instead of treating that as a negative is lean into it as a positive of not just wanting to help from a customer service perspective, but from that first point of contact for newbies, which is they're going to they're going to do their Googling. They're going to find the organization. They've usually made the decision that they're interested in whatever it is that you're offering, whether it's a play or an opera or an orchestra or a dance uh, performance. And so they just need to start learning more from there. So giving them the information that they need that isn't shrouded in jargon uh that is not easy to understand and assumptions of of familiarity is what that newbie and often a lot of infrequent buyers are looking for well, that makes complete sense to me and that actually really is like one of the biggest things that people they want uh they want to make it they want simple they want to understand what it is they're getting and they want to they really want the confidence to know that they're not making a bad decision that's at least what my research tells me a lot of times across concerts it's when i deal with the theater it's when i deal with sports it, it's everywhere I, it, even if i do consumer products it, it's all the same you know people just really like they want to know that they've made the right decisions confidence is, is probably the biggest thing but yes. Let me let me back up here to sure. because we talked about a lot of understanding the customer. What was the foundation? Like what was the hypothesis of your CRM system that you developed? You know, when when you started out, like what made you get started? Well, um I've been a I've owned a web development service um since 2010. And so we've worked with a lot of other systems out there. So we know what's what has been available. And I've been an arts consultant for over 25 years. And so I've seen it from the strategic level, from the board level to the marketing level and how all that funnels into ultimately the the online experience, both from an admin, the CRM perspective and the front end ticketing component. Um, But you know what honestly really triggered me to start moving in this direction about 10 years ago, 2015. Um, Someone you and I both know, and I'm not gonna call them out here, but I wrote this article. If someone wants to go find it, it's from January 20th, 2015 at adaptistration.com that they were talking about the subscription model and that the subscription model's not dead and you need to really hang on to it the way you've been doing it and you just need to sell it differently and i responded not with 
not with addressing that issue, because the title of the article is called to subscribe or not to subscribe. That's not the question. The question that should have been talked about back then were the limitations that the software had on doing anything except that option. You even back then doing something like a choose your own package was next to impossible um, selling voucher packs. Forget mm -hmm. it. That didn't exist anywhere. And my argument was arts organizations didn't have the right expectations and they needed to have the broader consulting field push them into pressuring those small group of providers into moving in that direction. Uh, and then that just evolved into, well, okay, why don't I put my money where my mouth is literally and just start building a system. And so we did that starting in 2018. Okay, so so this is an interesting thing because I think we both have um, somewhat similar experiences within the industry uh, on this idea, which you talked about. Um, the organizations haven't had the right expectations, and mm -hmm. that the challenge is trying to get these small group of consultants to push towards better answers, better questions, better solutions. Um, my question, how do I want to put this? I can put it like a joke, um, <laughs> which is probably the way it's going to be intended. Um, but how, a, I know that they haven't necessarily been successful. I go, but, but how do we even like get people to start thinking about things in the, from a, a different point of view? Because that's what seems like the failure the failure to me in most cases is a failure of imagination. And it's yeah. um, a failure of imagination um, built upon the idea that um, everything's going to be the same as it ever was. You know, right. so so how do you change that conversation? Because, and I, you know, again, I know that both of us probably have spent far too much time attempting to do that over the years. Well, that's exactly the right question to ask. And I think a lot of it comes down to you have to move past visioning because it's great to sit down and navel gaze in a positive way of saying, here are the things we wish we could do that we see that Amazon provides or Apple provides as far as a customer buying experience. Um, but if you can't get past the visioning stage, then that gets frustrating and it's only so good anyway. Our goal was when we set out to build Upstage was to move past visioning. You have to provide the capacity with a minimum amount of functionality that's going to bring to reality a lot of the stuff that everyone's been talking about from their wish list, from vision to practical application. And the next key part of this, this is the really important part, is you have to develop a framework that's designed to be customizable and grow without it costing mountains of money in the same way that traditional systems are built. Without loads of money. I will put that, that's definitely a show note for, for me for later. Uh, loads no, of money. It's a good, loads of money. It, it, but it's a, good, it's a good thing. It's um, because I think from the organization side, and this I hear again, it doesn't matter if it's an arts organization, if it's a sports organization, they all seem to have this fear that they'll make a decision with their consultant or their service provider, and then the service provider or the consultant does the bare minimum. Uh, and screen, I'll give you an extreme example. Um, 
I was working with somebody this year. They told they they said exactly those same things to me. And then at the end of the year, they actually called me up and they said, "Look, we want to give you some extra money because you've done you've went so far above and beyond uh, that you know we want to do reward you for that because that's not our, our experience with um, other consultants." Um, <laughs> and so. How do you explain that? Because, and I only say that because I want to. How do you teach people that the expectation can be there that this is not going to be a money pit? Well, and that is actually a really fascinating conversation in and of itself, just about the sales angle. Because, how do you teach someone that they can do something when they're used to not even imagining that it's possible? Um, on a very technical sense, you have to avoid being overly geeky about it because you know. One of the main differences on a code side of things that allows us to be able to do this is we've built the entire framework out on <clears throat> on a, a DynamoDB, which is a dynamic database system inside AWS, where most other systems are built on a SQL-based database system. The main difference that you have to understand between the two of those is it's easy and flexible for something in a dynamic database to add something like customization or make small changes and tweaks where that's much more time consuming to do on a SQL based system. So understanding that the underlying framework is there first and foremost, and then getting people to look at the way that they use their data differently. And here's, here's the example that I've been using uh, recently in sales is, I don't think it's any surprise we're coming back to subscriptions again, so brace yourself. It's no surprise that fixed subscriptions are a lot less popular. There's that study that JCA Arts just came out with, which is really helpful, um, that shows there's a big dive in fixed subscription sales. But even choose-your-own subscription packages have taken a dive. Not as much as fixed, but they're still down. The Where demand exists are in true, flexible subscriptions, which even defining that is important now. A flexible subscription doesn't require someone to select the date of an event they want to attend at the time of purchase. You're basically selling packages of ticket vouchers. That's what it should be. When we built our system, we did something uh, like vouchers. We took that benefit and turned it into a specific product. So you create a voucher product, you add individual ticket vouchers, you can put limitations as to what events and you know they're eligible for and which ones they aren't. You could even set a maximum dollar value. So if somebody applies it to a ticket type that's more, it acts as a coupon as opposed to you know, you know losing money on it. And then you just add that voucher product to a ticket package, a subscription product that you just basically sell the voucher But you can take that exact same voucher product and you can add that to a fixed or a choose your own subscription as an additional benefit. You can attach it to a membership program and sell it there. You can attach it to a donation and make it as a minimum $2,000 donation. Then you get this voucher uh, product that goes along with it is instead of looking at it as something that has to be attached and never removed from another product type is everything needs to work with everything. Everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> Since we're, that's a popular movie right now. No, that's yeah, our no, approach. But that's what it needs to be because again, you talked about it earlier. It's like, well, people have expectations that are built upon their buying experience from Amazon or from mm-hmm. you know buying, God forbid, I'll, I'll put myself on the spot here, going through the sneakers app on Nike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like all of these things. Uh, 
and, and I think it's just like you have to always be able to willing and able to put yourself in the the feet of the customers and understand that like what you consider value is irrelevant. What they consider right. value is the, is the, that's the gold because they're the ones with the money that are paying um, all of us to continue to do these jobs. And sure. And it's a it's very. Um, Gosh, if I, if I can achieve just that, when I get the, like a bulk of people to just go, hey, look, my opinion doesn't matter. And I say it like this. I go, hey, look, I, I always am reminded of how much of a moron I am every time I go and start doing research because I know absolutely nothing until I hear talk to these. Uh, people don't right. like that, that answer because they, you know, they always want to feel like their expertise is tied up in knowing what people want. My expertise is tied up in like knowing I don't know a thing and being willing to go find it. And so exactly. this is like, to me, it's so important. Now, I told you before when we started, too, that like, I am at the airport the first here. So I need noise in the background. It's all on me, not on Drew. Um, <laughs> but I, I want to make sure we get to everything. So um, one idea that I wanted to make sure I hit upon was um, you have a, a, an idea that you call one size fits none. Can you define yeah. that for me? Yeah, the one size fits none. It's very similar also to if, if your listeners are familiar with the uh, ill-fitting suit syndrome, which is people get so used to using whatever it is. In this case, we're talking about software. They're so used to software that doesn't do anything they really need well, but they get used to that being their frame of reference. So that's what they expect. When you offer somebody something that's different and outside of that, because it's so different, there's actually an initial negative reaction to it is this is different. So it can't be, quote unquote, right. Am I right? Pushing them past that one size fits none to change the expectation so that they look at the entire process of what they're doing with even figuring out how to sell of that voucher thing because it works so well you can sell a voucher product that has five ticket vouchers and attach it to a subscription product but you can attach it to a membership product sell both of them at the same time and you could report them both equally to figure out you know which one's doing better but the end buyer then decides which of those models they're most comfortable with buying so why why only put yourself in a position to where you want that one size fits none solution of a ticket package and we have to sell it as a ticket package and nothing else when there's so much more that you can do. Yeah, no, that, that's a, um, I think, I think that really hits right into that. You're not the customer and a lot of the stuff that we've been talking to. Mm -hmm. The reason we belabor this is because I want people to kind of uh, use their imagination a little more to imagine instead of what's, impossible think about like what is possible and if, i think there's solutions in most cases just like upstage is a solution that um, at least in my research seems to make the buying process a lot easier for people but again uh yes I'm get, that's a free plug for you drew that thank <laughs> run you with the plug run with the plug oh i um, will <laughs> i'm already blurbing it now as we're as we're chatting yeah, on twitter absolutely you should um all right so then Another question I wanted to make sure to get to was, uh, what trends and changes have you noticed um, inside the industry uh, since kind of the lockdowns from COVID have um, ended? Or what things have you been surprised to remain the same? I guess would be the flip side of that. You can take it either way you want or you can go wrong. Well, I've seen both good and bad trends, quite frankly. Um, 
the thing that I is probably the most disheartening, I'll start there and end in a positive direction, is the groups over the pandemic that gutted or completely eliminated their marketing staffs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Colleen just came out with that great uh, uh, post not long ago that was doing some research into just how much more trouble those organizations are having at trying to reacquire even their core audience because they just lost contact because shocking it happens when you don't have a marketing and communication staff and those that actually looked at their digital presence as sort of an online safe room and they just fled into it and they locked that door and they just keep they just kept pumping out as much you know engagement as they possibly could and experimented and found success and failure with what they were trying to do and those that learned what was good and could continue once regular activity resumed are i think the ones that are showing the the most positive trends right now because they're not just returning to business as usual but it's 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 business anew here's the stuff we learned that was smart that we probably should have been doing but didn't but now we are and now we're incorporating that into the fabric of who we are and just so I can highlight this point, because the companies that spent money on marketing and continued to market, they did, they're doing a better job now. Uh, that is true in any uh, recession or economic challenging time we're going to have now. It is a hundred years of data to back it up. It's mm -hmm. like if you can afford to continue to invest money in your advertising and your marketing through a downturn, you will become, you will come out better on the other end, right? But it, it requires. It really requires a pet topic of mine, which is being less of a, a moron about the way you market and sell your products. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, you know, but that, that, that's okay. That, that rant gets done here all the time. Uh, okay, so what? So what about the good stuff? Because we need to end on the high note, Drew. We can't just we can't just kick you in the shins and say you should have been marketing. That's my job. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the high note is is there are there are options out there. You aren't locked into the same ill-fitting suit that one size fits none syndrome. I mean, we're trying to inject that new, not just attitude and increasing the amount of competition in the field, but our hope is to also move the people who are our competitors to begin to, to, to try to catch up and approach that direction. So that the organizations who are locked into those systems for whatever reason they are, because it's not easy to move, we all understand that. Uh, that they'll begin to embrace more of these ideas so they can really in a, in a meaningful way be able to reach out to new audiences and not continue to cater to the same old crowd over and over again um, i'm seeing much braver marketing material especially along the lines of focusing on the benefit of the buyer you and I have been talking about that throughout this conversation and even before it started, where, you know, what's the benefit for them? Why should they be there? Be empathetic and find the value point for them. Um, and that only is going to snowball in a good direction. Yeah, no, that's um, that's absolutely true. And it's uh, I, would, I don't know if we said it before or after we started recording. It's uh, but I spent so much time doing research because people tell me what they want to, what they'll give me that, their money for. And then mm -hmm. I just go and give it to them. And I think that, again, this is like a research question. It's, you you go into the research with an empty head. 
and you just sort of like have a hypothesis and then you figure out like how the answer is going to come and then you ask people questions or you go looking for the answer to the question you're asking and don't just make assumptions because that's like the real danger the mm-hmm. bad trend i see is that people are still making all of these just terrible assumptions but on the good side, though, is that as, as things are continuing to be more challenging, it's forcing people to look for different solutions. Uh, yes. Slowly, absolutely, absolutely too, much too slowly for, for my concern. But again, you know, I, I'm, of course, always been like, go fast and try things because we don't know exactly what's going to work. But still, that's what but people changing that point of view to be like, well, I am willing to try something, uh, even if I'm a little scared. And that's what I do like. Absolutely. I mean, I think the more you and I talk and get to know each other, the more I think we're you know, business brothers from another mother kind of scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's like, it was a true. It, it was definitely a true pleasure to see you in person and get the chance to hang out and talk. Likewise, uh, that was yeah. like, that was definitely a highlight of my trip to Seattle. Um, all right. So then one more question and then we'll, yeah. we'll, plug a, we'll plug a little more business and we'll plug all the Drew stuff. But where outside of opera and the arts do you get your ideas from? Because I know you and your wife, you especially Holly, she does a great job of like sharing stuff from all over the place. And I'm assuming it's just because of the nature of like all the incredibly cool things she does. But you also do incredibly cool things. Um, so I'm sure that like she influences that, like you do it back and forth. But where do you where do you get your ideas from outside of the arts? And well, you just mentioned it. Um, I mean, my wife and I, although we don't sit around and talk shop all day long, no. Uh, but we we definitely talk about ideas. Um, we talk a lot about um, bias, the especially a lot of the research in bias that's been coming out lately. That's very popular. Human nature, how people buy, psychology. Um, I get a lot of additional inspiration from uh, the science behind UX and UI. You know, so taking all the psychology that's been applied to buying habits and then applying that to design to do it in a positive way, not just a manipulative way. Um, that's that's where I tend to go to get inspiration and ideas now. Um, inside the field, I get a lot less inspiration than I used to because, you know, when you've been at this for 25 years, there are only so many times you can hear the same conversation over and over and over and you need to get out of that hole um, and you need to pop your head up and, and look around at these other fields. So I, I enjoy looking in those directions and also in, um, as of recent, I've been looking into the field of like private equity investment and venture capital investment, what those investors see as value in a business because that mm-hmm. same idea and attitude needs to be applied to the people inside arts organizations to how they value what they're selling to their customers. Um, there's a there's there's a lot to learn, although there are some things to be avoided as well. Um, but well, for true. now, that's where I'm getting a lot of, you know, my 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 recent inspiration, let's say. No, I the private equity that's a good way of doing it because i have a uh, a neighbor who is involved in a hedge fund i don't know exactly what he, what he does i'm guessing he invests in stuff and we thought he asked me we have conversations about like he tells me what the value is or what they're trying they see the value is and then i'm able to put the marketing eyes on it and mm-hmm. I, I think like just as a like exclamation point on the entire conversation is like 
don't be afraid to challenge your thinking by going out to other places because you absolutely should. Because just because you might not have the or you won't have the budget of Amazon or Apple to spend right. on your marketing or your research, it doesn't mean that you can't take one or two of those ideas and put them in place. Because what I've learned is that just a small amount of market research, or you might even not have as much as you did, Drew, to put in the research. A small amount will take you a long way, especially when you don't have any, because it's a lot of times it's the mindset, it's the framework that you create, which is like to start with the question you want to answer and make sure that the question is absolutely focused on the right way of approaching the solution or the, or, or the problem. It'll lead you to a better solution. You know, and I think that's really, if, if I was paraphrasing our conversation, it's be uh, brave in the questions you ask of the world around you so that you can find better answers. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect way to everything kind of put a punctuation on everything. Great. Listen to me, like paying attention, listening. It's like I know what I'm doing over here. Um, Drew, how can people find you on the Internet? Uh, the first place they should head to is uh, upstagecrm.io, which is where you will find everything you need to know about the Ticketing CRM platform. That We are the Ticketing CRM that our organizations have been waiting for all these years. You can set up a demo with us there. Uh, if you're interested in uh, orchestra management, um, although I stopped writing the blog a couple of months ago, there is content going back from 2003. I used to write daily. There are literally thousands of articles, <laughs> and you, you, there's, there's a lot of good content there. Um, I run Arts Hacker, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like, kind of life hacker, but for arts managers, where we talk about practical tips and tools uh, that arts managers can use to make themselves better and more efficient arts managers. That's artshacker.com. Um, I also, <laughs> there's a lot of places. You asked a really okay. open question. There's also- um, I try. Uh, Arts admin jobs, which is something I created several years ago as uh, a service to give back to the field because I really dislike the idea that most of the arts admin jobs boards either charge employers or charge job seekers or both and make them very limited. This is a totally free uh, jobs board and I'm happy to say it's grown to be the third, if not the second largest arts jobs board that's out there right now. Um, and you know, that's was for me easy to put in place because it's, it's tech. I got the tools, I've got the resources, why not? And the field needs it. Um, so those are the, those are all the, the primary points of contact right now. Awesome. Well, Drew, thank you so much for doing this. I, I appreciate it. And the Likewise. next time we do this, I will try to not do it from the airport. <laughs> hey, I think you did a great job for staying focused with the distractions that are the airport around you. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Let me know what you think of my conversation with Drew. Send me an email. It's my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Check out the Dave Wakeman website at www.DaveWakeman.com. That is where you're going to find my blog. That's where you're going to find the shop that now includes a situational consulting offering. And there will be more stuff there because I'm finally getting my act together um, and making it so that people understand a little bit more, uh, make it simpler for people to understand how to work with me, uh, which is great for you and especially for me, right? <laughs> okay. 
check out my friends at Cover Genius, right? They will be at the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Birmingham, England. Uh, ask them about CFAR, which is cancel for any reason. It's a really cool new product. It does exactly what it says. Uh, this is important because we are seeing just more and more data that backs up the idea that peace of mind is the most important factor uh, or not, if not the most, it's one of the key factors in whether or not people will buy tickets to events, plan holidays, uh, plan trips, do all kinds of stuff. So CFAR is cancel for any reason. Uh, ask Joe, ask Haley, ask the Cover Genius team about it. It's super important. Like I said, at the start of the show uh, at the Playhouse Theater in Ohio, they saw 48% of customers take up refund protection. That is the biggest number by probably close to 50% that we've seen, or at least I've ever seen, since I've been tracking refund protection rates uh, probably five or six years now. Uh, so that's an incredible number to know. That's an incredible thing to see. So check them out, covergenius.com. Uh, make sure you get my newsletters, Talking Tickets, uh, talkingtickets.substack.com. That's all about tickets, just like it's in the name. Uh, the business of entertainment, just like this podcast often is. Uh, but also there's the business of value, which is businessofvalue.substack.com. And that's all about strategy, branding, and marketing. Uh, both of them, they are nice partners to each other. Um, as always, I want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, but keep an eye on that shop because you'll actually get to see me in person a lot more this year. Uh, but if you like the podcast, please rate it, review it, share it. It helps me a lot. It helps get better, uh, continue to get great guests like Drew. Um, it's really helpful to me. So, But thank you for being here, and I will talk to you 